Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush, and on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Jim Down, an intensive care doctor at University College London Hospitals. This year marks the NHS's 75th anniversary, which comes at a crisis point for the health service in this time of strikes and backlogs. But our listeners may know Jim better for his work during the pandemic, from his 2021 book, Life Support, which chronicles his experience on the COVID frontline in an ICU ward. And a New Statesman long read headlined The Peak, documenting one of his night shifts during the height of what was the first COVID wave in April 2020. Now he's bringing out a second book all about life in intensive care called Life in the Balance, out on the 23rd of February. Thanks so much for coming into the studio, Jim. It was a great pleasure. Now, before we get into the meat of your book, I should tell our listeners that we are recording this episode in the week of the biggest round of strikes in NHS history. What's the mood at your hospital like at the moment and among your colleagues? I think we're all pretty unanimously supportive of the nurses and the ambulance workers and potentially, if it comes to it, the junior doctors. I think the feeling is it's been highlighted by the last couple of years being so extreme. I think that we all feel that the nurses should be paid better for them and also for the future of the profession. We're already whatever it is, 40,000 short in this country, and that's only going to get worse unless we look after them, I think. Okay, and so you'd call on the government to give the pay rises that they're demanding? I Yes, I would. I'm, I appreciate that's a very easy thing to say from my position, and <laughs> there's lots of consequences of that, but I think both in, in, in nursing and in junior medical staff, it's the only way we're going to keep them in the profession, and we now know how much we need them. I think everyone knows how much we need them. And I think the shortages are severe. There's lots of reasons for that, which we have been rehearsed a lot. But if you look at junior doctors, for example, it's totally different to when I came out, 20, however long ago that was. They come out with £100,000 worth of debt. They're paid poorly years before they can think about moving on with the stage of their lives. And I think that many of them think of just leaving, going to Australia, going to New Zealand, where life looks a lot more attractive. 
And so what does that mean if they don't get the pay that they're asking for and if this situation carries on getting worse? What does it mean for the future of the NHS? Is that something that concerns you? Oh, absolutely. I think I think we've seen in just in the last 12 years, as you I look back to the new Labour years mm. and what did we complain about in the NHS? We complained about MRSA, which <laughs> is still there and yet you never hear about it now. And that's because at that time, waiting lists were three months, two months for a hip replacement. And A&E targets, 98% would hit four-hour targets. It was a totally different uh, time. And whereas, you know, we all know what the situation is now. And if we don't get the staff, we, that won't get better, I don't think. The government will often say that this is down to the extraordinary circumstances of the pandemic, which, of course, you've written about and works, worked on firsthand. How much is it down to what COVID did to the NHS in terms of waiting lists? And how much is it down to longer term factors? I think it's a mixture. There's no question the pandemic was was horrendous and everything stopped. And I, I believe rightly there are bits of what the government did that I would criticise. But generally, I think lockdowns were necessary, awful, but necessary. I think the move to focusing on the pandemic, particularly in that first surge, was unavoidable. It was, if you were there, it was awful. It, and there was no other way to deal with it. It was new, the scale was unimaginable, and we had to focus on it. I know people say it affected older people, and it, it took 10 years off people's lives, the people who died. So that's a it was huge. But that's had a massive impact, of course, and waiting lists have gone up. But also, if you look at the um, the last sort of 10, 12 years, the funding has not kept up with inflation. And I think it's been building over that time, really. Do you, how much does it affect your area of the hospital, these backlogs and the waiting lists and what you've just been describing? It's interesting. It doesn't affect my work, per se, except for staffing on a daily basis. I suppose the biggest effect to me personally is that if we've got gaps on our junior doctor rotor or nursing shifts unfilled, then it's much more difficult to run the day. And what inevitably happens is that elective work gets cancelled. So part of the intensive care is taking surgery, you know, really major surgery that needs to come to intensive care for a night or two afterwards. And if we haven't got the staff to cover, that's the bit that gets delayed right because you can't not take emergencies so that's where we sit so that's our big sort of daily struggle is to keep that flow going and of course the patients feel it the most when they come in on and on that day when they're all geared up to have their big cancer operation it's put off it's awful do you notice what the waiting lists are doing to people in terms of making them sicker are you getting patients in who perhaps wouldn't have been in icu if they'd been seen on time so i haven't got i can't give you hard data on that i know there was a very odd thing in the first wave where people stayed at home yeah who and i think quite a lot of people died at home because they didn't feel they should go to hospital either because they didn't want to burden it or because they were worried about catching covid so I'm sure there is a knock-on effect of that. And I think also if you delay surgery, if you're waiting for a hip replacement, you can't walk. If you wait another year, mm. you know, the effects of not walking for a year are, are not good for you. You're less fit, you're less able to come through your surgeries. It, it definitely has an impact. And in your book, there are some headline-grabbing cases in your book. Alexander Litmanenko admitted to your ward the aftermath of the 7-7 terrorist attacks and a scene at a train crash where you actually go to the scene after a train has derailed. But a great deal of your work is also more of the sort of mundane struggle mm. to find beds. How do you balance those two, the great drama, I think, that comes with ICU, but also these these features of the system failures that you've just been running me through? Y yeah, I mean, 
I mean, so that's, I really wanted to put that in because I think people, the sort of perception from TV dramas yeah. of ICU is it's about the, will they make it, won't they make it, the sort of beeping monitor, and, yeah. and it's either all great or catastrophe. But actually, of course, I see a lot of it is that daily struggle for beds. And I try really wanted to try that takes up a huge amount of all of our time trying to work out what we can do, what we should do, how you should use the resource, how things are going to develop over the day, because you're constantly balancing emergencies with electives. And then all the nuance about are we doing the right thing by this person by putting them through days and days of yeah. or weeks and weeks of intensive care? Is the burden of is the ben- p- potential benefit worth the burden? I suppose a lot of jobs, most of it is those sort of nuanced, complex things. And then you have a sudden something like a pandemic or a train crash or a Russian yeah. spy that <laughs> it did changes the pace a bit. Yeah. And how has the struggle for beds got worse over the course of your career? You mentioned the new Labour years being easier. Yes, has, has I mean, always it, been a part of it. It's always been there, and it and it's worse every winter, of course, mm. and that's the eternal struggle or problem. I think it's got worse. There's lots of factors, aren't there? The population's changing, people are living longer, all those kind of things. There are some good factors as well. Smoking is clearly far less than it was when I was a junior doctor in the 90s, and so that's great. And maybe if we could do the same thing with ultra-processed foods, and then that would be a huge thing. So there are things going in the right direction. But I think the combination of a changing population and the reduced sort of relative funding has made it worse. Definitely. Right. Okay. And we always want to talk about solutions on the NHS podcast. Mm-hmm. If you have some ideas, you write about the postcode lottery of healthcare in this country. And one of your ideas is to pair up thriving hospitals with failing hospitals. Can yes, explain? I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for this <laughs> at work. Because I, I know it was, it was put forward as an idea a few years ago, I think maybe by Margaret Hodge. And because there is a problem with the whole... So the one thing I'm, I'm not... I, don't agree with New Labour on this was this idea that the sort of business competitive thing. I think there's a place for that, but you have to be really careful with it because it's not a business. And who suffers if a place isn't doing well and isn't getting rewarded? The people who live there, not the not the people who work there. Mm-hmm. People who work there might get demoted or something, but the people who live there, the patients suffer. Yes, yes. So I think, uh, and there, there will always be centres of excellence that will attract people and there'll be a sort of a virtuous circle. When we're training, we go around all the hospitals, so you see everything. And I think maybe we should pair up the ones that are struggling with ones that are, are thriving and to try and eradicate that postcode lottery as much as we can. I don't, I don't, I'm not claiming that we can have nirvana, but I think... Uh, I do think that is something that, w- that we could look at. And what would that look like, sharing? I'm going to be in so much trouble. But you could, <laughs> uh, you know, you. so you, there are hospitals that, are, that are, have taken over by other hospitals if they're failing and you could make them one trust and then you, you all thrive or fail as one group. So then there's an incentive for the, for the more successful hospital to, to ensure that the other one performs better as it were and I think I think it would be complex but I think it's a certainly worth a look I think people always talk about money and reform and I'm sure that's right but it feels that you've got to be very careful with the reform I think so that you don't have unintended consequences that's interesting because a couple of former health secretaries Ken Clark and Sajid Javid have suggested that people who are higher paid at least should pay something for a GP appointment or a minor procedure. How do you feel about those kind of that kind of direction for reform? Mixed about I think there's a thing about the NHS when it's when it's working well, it's brilliant. And Mm. I think there's a lot of advantages to it being free at the point of use. And I think there's a lot of advantages to the staff in it not being incentivized 
by what they do. If so, if you compare with America, where you get paid for doing a thing, yeah. Then, and I like the fact that we aren't the consultant tiers are essentially is a flat thing. Mm -hmm. Everyone's paid to go and do their job, and that means that they don't have an incentive to do particular things because they'll get paid more. Now, there, you could say there's a disadvantage because it, that doesn't breed efficiency and things. But I think overall, I'd rather that than the American system. And I also think if you, I mean, personally, don't necessarily think the way we pay for it is I think I'm very happy to pay for it out of taxation I don't mind paying more tax for it but I don't think there's a problem with the free at the point of use I get the argument that people shouldn't use it irresponsibly but I really think the thing is you need to have the money and the governance of it you know wherever that comes from and I'm happy to do it through taxation to be honest Hi it's Anoush here this is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. If you enjoy The New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth. Featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. about yourself intensive care is the section of the hospital with the sickest patients and you have to make these snap decisions that can affect people's lives so often and you describe yourself in the book more than once I think as risk averse why did you choose that area of medicine <laughs> yeah I don't know it is a bit counterintuitive the first thing is I think medicine you do has risks I have huge respect for GPs in that they have this job of constantly assessing the risk of is this something serious or is it gonna is it they do that whatever it is, 30 times a day in a very short period of time, yeah. knowing that there's, that you can't get away from the fact that something could be wrong. Now they have safety nets and systems and bring people back. But I would find that really stressful. I want to, I'd want to scan everyone <laughs> from head to foot. And, Love you. Yes, but the, the taxpayer wouldn't. So this, and there was a, there's a timescale about that. So there would be the one that niggled in my head and I'd be thinking about it all week. Whereas in intensive care and anaesthesia, which I also do, it's immediate. So I can so usually at the end of the day, I can see what the effects of what I've done. It happens in real time and that suits me well. The risk thing, though, you know, I've had to, I spent a lot of time trying to 
rationalise the risk. And really only recently, as I talk about in the book towards the end, it's only in the last couple of years that I've really faced up to it and accepted that you you can't eradicate risk and you have to learn to live with it. Yeah. And that's quite, I don't know if it'll, if it'll make me a better doctor, but it's, it's bizarre that it took me so long to to accept it, if you like. Really interesting, that journey, because you write of some of your early experiences in a hospital and you look at the ICU doctors and you mm. think, God, they're so confident, they know what they're doing, they're unflappable, their word is the sort of gold standard. And you think that in time you'll become like that. You say you, you'll become confident and wiser, but actually you say you've become more risk averse and more anxious and actually your imposter syndrome has become more acute. Yeah, I think I think I went through I think it was quite common actually. So I went through a period of feeling peaked in confidence if you like. And then there's a couple of things that happen I think. One is that you as you get older you relate to patients yeah. more closely, so more of them are your your mm. age and so you feel more vulnerable and the decisions you make feel more personal in a way because you put yourself in their shoes, which is a good thing in lots of ways but also can make decisions more difficult. And I think think a lot of people towards the latter end of their career start to find the decisions more difficult for that reason and yeah so your objectivity goes a bit and the more you've seen the more you've been surprised and that in some ways is not helpful (laughs) so it's it's interesting the more you know the less you know in a way yes Um, and it's about embracing that uncertainty that you yeah 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 so i talk about yeah when i was having a bad time someone really put their finger on it so how do you deal with uncertainty and that really made me think that's what i've got that's the problem and we all have to deal with it don't we but i was doing that thing of baldrick writing his (laughs) name on a bullet so he couldn't be shot so that he had the bullet with his name on it and you make a really striking point in the book that anaesthetists many of whom are icu doctors Mm. like you they have a shorter life expectancy than other doctors Mm. why do you think that is and why did that stat strike you it's an interesting that stat is a sort of i'm not saying that's completely hard data but there is data to, to suggest that and i I think it's an odd job because it, it's got this sort of combination of high responsibility but low control. When a patient, when we put someone to sleep, they're completely our responsibility and you have to take over their vital functions. And that's almost always absolutely fine. So I don't want to put off anyone off having an anaesthetic, but it's odd because you, for two reasons. One is you are not the person who makes them better, but you can make them a lot worse. And two, you're not the one who's really made the decision for them to be there. Now, with more complex patients, we do get involved in that decision more and more. But traditionally, the surgeon books them for a case and then you take them on. And obviously, some people are very straightforward to anaesthetise and others aren't. So you've got this gap between control and responsibility. And people talk about that as a high stress, um, a a, a stressful thing to have. So there's that. There's also this issue that the better you are at it, the more invisible you become, which is an odd thing. You know, and that's why people become anaesthetists, I think, because they're not showy people but it right. is we're always quoted that 50 percent of the country don't realize that they're medically trained all that kind of thing oh really so it's an odd it's an odd job in that way and then the final tragic thing is that of course anesthetists have access to drugs through my career i've known of a few people who've taken their own lives anesthetists do it very quietly and effectively and it's very it's mm. awful so i think yeah it's a mixture of factors yes and you do write about how your own mental health has been affected by mm. your work you talk a little bit about your experience with that yeah so i i think covid affected us all initially in that sort of extraordinary sort of camaraderie way came yeah. in and got on with it and in some ways that it was easier for us because we had a job and we was you knew what you were meant to do but by the end of that sort of year and a bit of the first two big waves we were all a bit shell-shocked by the 
just the scale of, of what had happened, really. Yeah. And many of us were haunted by all the patients we'd seen. And then, and I came out of it and then I had a case that was upsetting and that I that just was the straw that broke the camel's back, I think, and I decompensated. And it felt very ac- acute. It felt like it had happened just after that thing. But looking back, it's clear that it was lots and lots of things. And I just, I got into a sort of anxiety, depression spiral. And I had two lucky things. One was that I'm a, by being here, I'm a massive oversharer. So <laughs> I didn't go, I didn't shut up about it as some people do. I just, I told everyone and bored everyone to death. <laughs> and, and the other thing was that although I felt dreadful, I didn't ever not want to get better. I didn't get into that right. feeling of, I don't want to... I want to just stop here. So that, so I was lucky, and I was also lucky in that um, had amazing support work from our psychological service through a thing called Practitioners Health, which is there for all medical staff. And then I became a cliche and started jumping in the Lido like everyone else. Oh, yes, <laughs> the cold swimming. I know. Cure. <laughs> yes. yes, but it was incredibly helpful to me because it was the first. I never dreamt I'd do it, and someone suggested it. And the first time I got in the water, it just completely cleared my head because. I couldn't think of anything apart from the how cold it was. <laughs> <laughs> and you yeah. go all year round, don't you? Yeah, I still go. Yeah, five degrees this yeah. morning. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, it's That's cold. Impressive. But it's not. I don't. It's the thing. One of the things I like about it is it's the people there. Are, it's not at all. There's no machismo or mm. just a bunch of chilly men. Yeah, chilly <laughs> and women. But yeah, chilly middle, the elderly <laughs> men who who talk nonsense. And, yeah. <laughs> It's interesting, isn't it? Because during the pandemic, there was a lot of talk of this idea of rationing healthcare. But actually, that is something that you have to do every day when you decide who does and doesn't get an ICU bed. Because as you write, it's not a very nice experience being there. Yeah, I think my personal view on this is that is that rationing is there. We For rationing not to be there, we'd have to have an endless budget. All the time we're rationing. So the, the nice, if a new drug comes out, they do a cost-benefit analysis and decide whether to make it available on the NHS or not. That's rationing, isn't it? Mm. And I think no one likes to talk about it. And I suppose my caveat would be we don't ration emergency care. I think the NHS has always been and still is really brilliant if if you're acutely sick. And I suppose that's one of the reasons I would defend it to the to the Hilton, I, I would have, I'd be against, on principle, against privatisation because I think picking off the easy bits and leaving that hard bit to the NHS is a real, really frightens me. Yeah, the NHS is what picks up the problems from the private sector often. So if you things go wrong in the private sector, it's very common to end up in the NHS. Not always, and I'm not having a go at the private sector, but I it offers that those hard yards, at mm-hmm. the, and I think it's brilliant for that. If you're um, if your hip replacement, you wait a year for you, that's rationing, isn't it? That's because yeah. you'd be better served getting it done in a month. And if that's a form of, if you've got cancer and it's delayed, that's... But yeah, I think we have to face that. The difficult thing about that is it'll always be there, but also the decisions we make about it are so difficult. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to get at in that yes. beds chapter is, is it seems that obvious that where well, you delay the person having bariatric surgery, say, but of course, then they will get all sorts of problems by being delayed and they're on a pathway and so I don't think there are, I suppose at the point I come out with at the end is that there are, it's not straightforward how to yeah. ration it. Yeah, that's a really interesting part of the book that runs, it's a theme that runs through the book is the sort of the weight of those ethical decisions and how you reconcile those each and every day. Yeah, or try to. I yeah, or try to, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
All right. I think that's all we want to ask. But thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It was great to have you. And I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot about the inner workings of these sometimes mysterious parts of the hospital <laughs> that hopefully have yes. to use. Well, that's, yeah, no one really wants to know about it unless they have yes. to go there. But I thought, yeah, hopefully they want to read about it. Though. Yes, hopefully. And the <laughs> yeah. book is Life in the Balance and it's out on the 23rd of February. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my guest, Dr. Jim Down. We're produced by Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to leave us a nice review and subscribe. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.